we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. You don't got time that. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Happy Friday on your June 10th. Lane Gillespie with me. I'm Derek Johnson here on KLWN. We're going to be joined by Brandon McAnderson coming up in about 30 minutes from right now. BMAC will hop on the show. We're going to talk some... KU football with BMAC. We're going to talk some Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic. And uh, we're also going to get to some NBA Finals talk with BMAC. Game four is coming up tonight. The Warriors are kind of in a must win. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that later on in the show. It is National Egg Roll Day. It is also National Ice Tea Day. Do without what you will. Um, the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic was last night. And there are still plenty of festivities going on through the weekend. We have the dinner tonight. We have the uh, Rock Truck Round Bowl Classic coming up tomorrow. I think that's the second year that the bowling event will uh, come together. I, I don't think there's any tickets or, or ways that you can get involved with that. You, you can check at rocktruckroundballclassic.com. But um, I, I, there, there still are ways that you can support the, the cause if you're interested or if you went to the event last night and you're like, how can I do more? Or if you just haven't done anything yet um and you are interested in in kind of getting involved in some way you can just straight up donate rockchalkroundballclassic.com you can submit a donation you can actually get involved tonight so at the dinner there's going to be a a live auction that happens tonight there was a silent auction that occurred online that went on yesterday and most of those items have already uh, been finished up but they have some items reserved for uh the live auction tonight at the dinner and there's actually a registration link to get involved with that auction, even if you can't make it to the dinner, that I don't know how it works if you're going to, like, zoom in or just click bid, like, on the computer or something like that or, or how that works. But you can still bid on it, even if you're not actually there, if that's something of interest. Uh, I think you can buy, like, T-shirts and hats, something like that. Uh, so still plenty of ways that you can get involved or, at the very least, just just mark it on your calendar for next year and get ahead of it because it, it is such a uh, fun and awesome event. Lane, this was your first time. Yeah, going out it was. to the event. What would you make of it? What did you think of uh, all the festivities last night? It was so much fun. The crowd atmosphere was extraordinary. It was a lot better than I thought it would be. I know it's a place that gets filled up from time to time at Free State High School, but the enthusiasm of the crowd, you know, all coming together for a great cause and to watch some former Jayhawk legends, or I guess they're still legends, but they played back in the day. It was abs- it was so much fun to see, I got to say. And the game in and of itself was so eye-opening. Uh, not only just you know having some fun around with your friends, but also getting the crowd involved from time to time. It was it was amazing. Yeah, and it was a uh, true good like. Ba- it wasn't like back and forth in terms of like you think of okay they score we score they score we score. It was back and forth in terms of the blue team got up big. They're up, I, I think it was like twenty one at half, but then they adjusted the score and then it became eighteen or nineteen at, at the halftime break. I think sixty seven forty eight so nineteen. At the break, and it looked like Blue Team was going to finally end that losing streak. They had lost uh, uh, five in a row in the series to the Crimson team. Crimson just came roaring back in the second half, 
And uh, Devon Dotson and Wayne Selden put on an absolute show for the Crimson team, really throughout the game. Devon started the game that way, then, you know, went to the bench for a little, and then he finished the game on a tear along with Wayne Selden. I'll, I'll say this, like, uh, I, I always talk about coming into the event, you know, what guys are going to take it most seriously? I think there were a couple things last night. We saw guys that were willing to make, like, the the hustle plays that you don't always see in those, like Christian Moody for the Blue Oh, team. yeah. All sorts of rebounds and, and you know, sorts of plays like that. Um but guys that are also willing to, like when I say play defense, you're not playing like your your typical man-to-man defense. About the extent of the defense that you're going to play in an event like that is just trying to steal the ball from someone. Like you're, you're not going to try to body them up or, you know, create all this contact or something because you don't want to injure someone. You're just going to try to to strip the ball out or, or poke it free or something. Wayne Selden had, I don't know, probably a handful or two of steals in that game, and, and that led to quite the dynamic duo for the two of them. But uh, I think the player of the game was probably Jeff Graves. I would I would agree. Yeah, he was a, you know, he was a very late selection um, on the draft that we had, which we'll talk more about yeah. later. Um, he was the very last guy to be announced, and I think that he showed up and balled out a lot more than you know we than he thought he would. He finished around double digit points, and I would say around double digit say rebounds. 16, as well. 17 points. I think yeah. Sam had him down for sixteen rebounds. Wow, <laughs> it's sixteen and sixteen in the title game in 03, So he just. Uh, he was reminiscent of that, except this time he got he got to win the trophy and he had the the game winning shot at the end. I I was a little bummed. It, it's funny because normally, if you're a play by play announcer and especially of an event, you know, like you, you were the voice of of the Jayhawks for for KU baseball. When you when you're the voice of a specific team, you are like sort of rooting for them as well, and you do have right. that element of it. Like you you do stay at least enough um, unbiased to where. You know, if big things happen for the other team, like you're going to broadcast, you you don't want to be the guy who's just like, "Oh, are you kidding me?" Right on air. But when you're doing a game that like this, where it's like, I, I don't really care who wins. It's fifty fifty. It's it's all for charity. It's it's two teams consisting of of guys that you know I like or respect or have gotten the chance to talk to on both teams. So like, I'm not rooting for one team or another. It, it you know, whoever wins, I just want an awesome story. That's all you're rooting for in a game like that. And you would think that in that situation. As a play-by-play guy, you're like, oh, I, I, I'm dreaming for the, uh, the buzzer-beating play at the end of this game. I was sitting there as, as like the final play is occurring. I think it was Sharon who took the three, couldn't hit yep. it from the corner. Jeff Graves gets the rebound and the stick back as, as time runs out. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, man, I, like before Sharon gets the shot up and, and as they're passing the ball, I'm like, I kind of want them to miss this so that this ends up tied. Um, because what I wanted to happen was the sudden death free throw line. Um, which is what happened about a decade ago. We had Team Pollard versus Team Stallworth. Scott Pollard and, and Bud Stallworth had to shoot free throws in a sudden death situation for the coaches had to come out and shoot the free throws. And, and whoever made it, which it was Bud Stallworth, Scott Pollard misses, and he just walks it off. And it was such a fun kind of moment to end the game. And so as, as, as awesome as the, the buzzer beater was last night, it, it almost took something away because I, I really wanted to see Wayne Simeon and Brett Ballard, the two head coaches, get to shoot it off against each other. Do you think the assistant coaches could have gotten involved too? Because I would have loved <laughs> to see Yudoka Azabuki yeah, shoot a right? free throw. Uh, I, I think, you know, th- that's a good point. It would have been like, you know, in soccer, they do penalty kicks, right? right? And it's not the same guy does the penalty kicks every time. They have their line and they pick their order. I think they pick their order of 11 people if it goes that deep. Usually it doesn't. They do five. And then they do, if it's tied after the five, they do sudden death. Um we need to talk to – I mean, it's, it's only happened one time, and it almost happened again last night, but it still has only happened one time. That would be a fun way of settling it. You have 
because typically we do have the, the coaching staffs are, are really deep on both teams. You usually have five, six, maybe seven guys on the coaching staff where we do it as it's like that shootout in, in soccer where yeah. we have, you know, both teams select three coaches to shoot the free throws or, or maybe the other team gets to pick what three coaches get to shoot. And, and could you imagine, like you said, if Yudoka Azubuki cashed a free throw <laughs> to win the Rock Truck Round right. Classic, that place would be going bananas. It'd be awesome. So I, I would love to see that. And, and then whereas, like, you know, if, if you're picking your own, you're picking, like, Perry Ellis was a coach. Like, of course, he'll go knock down the free throw. But the other team's like, no, we don't we don't want to pick Perry Ellis. Maybe you have a thing where that team gets to pick two and the other team gets to pick two. That would be a good idea. I like that a lot. We'll uh, maybe talk to Brian and, and see if we can get a rule change. Although I don't think that's, like, they don't have, like, a Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic, like, official rule book. It's just like, <laughs> you know, if it ends up tied, we'll think of something fun to, to finish it. And uh, that's what they ended up doing, which I am curious if when they first did that to begin with, if it was something they just, you know, it ended up tied and they were like, what should we do here? And that's what they came up with. Or if they had kind of thought of that um, beforehand. But, you know, it was funny um, watching Devon Dotson for sure, because there's always those players. I talk about this every year in the final three, four, five minutes of the game. They start to take things very seriously and not enough so that you're body checking people or, or hard fouling or playing hard defense or, uh, you know, playing all the way as far as that goes or like driving into the paint and just or, or like cherry picking, trying to get easy buckets and stuff. But to the point where you are taking it very seriously, you're at least giving like a, a partial effort defensively. And, you know, um, that was the case for Devon all game. And like it, it was funny because. Whereas. I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't see Devon's smile, like, the whole day. He was right. just, like, locked in. And, like, he, he wanted to win that thing so much. I, I I take that back. He smiled when they won the game. um, And that's that's part of the special part of this is that it is for charity. It is an exhibition game. It doesn't count. This doesn't go on, like, their Wikipedia page, like, four and three all time in the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic or something like that. But the competitive juices come out when you're playing with a bunch of other athletes and, and when you're just you know, competing in the sport that you play professionally, like clearly that is going to uh, lead those competitive juices to kind of coming out. And we saw that with Devon Dotson last night. And, and I think it, it it's just a reminder for some of these guys of, you know, you think back to their time at KU, you think back to their time at college and maybe how successful they were at KU or like a really good team that they were on. And, and it just makes you kind of reminisce back and go, yeah, I can see why that team was so successful because clearly they have great coaching and they have great recruits coming in and all these athletes and, and players that can do so many things. But you still have to have that mental side of it. You still have to have that super high competitive. I mean, anytime you win 14 straight Big 12 titles, obviously, like, you know, none of the players who were on Team 3 were on Team 11, right? That that has to be kind of passed down in some way. And you see the 2019-20 Kansas team, which was – one of the best that Bill Self has had. It was the best team in the country that year. And, you know, um, you have Devon Dotson kind of leading the way and not letting his teammates down, not letting his team ever kind of have a, a mental lapse by being that kind of competitive guy. You know, that's kind of what you got to see on display last night, which is really cool. Yeah, without a doubt. And this was Devon's – was this Devon's first Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic? Yeah. So maybe just something like that gave him a little bit of an edge to want to show out in front of this crowd and mm -hmm. put up a huge number. And I will say there are some – for some people, being competitive is what 
you know, is the equivalent of having fun. And I think with Devon, he is a pretty competitive guy. He's a he's a small guy, six one, I believe, is his height. And he was one of the more competitive guys I saw when he spent his two Listen years six at KU. Two. Be careful yeah. with that. Six two. We'll come okay. Oh, <laughs> I'm I'm six foot. So it, it it to me it doesn't really matter. You're about the same height as me, but you could still kick my butt in a game of one on one. Basically, you, we've <laughs> had past people here on the show who Devon has come after for not thinking he's six two. So be All careful. Right. So six foot two. Be careful. All right, six foot two. But compared to a lot of other guys that he's played against and guys on his team, he's one of the smaller guys, but he's scrappy and he is very, very competitive. So and I, I can attest to this as well. You know, sometimes being competitive makes things a lot more fun. Yep. And it certainly made it fun last night. 113-111. Team Crimson the win. Wayne Simeon gets the dub. He's 1-0. Brett Ballard 0-1. He, I'm sure at halftime he was like, oh, this is going to be easy. But uh, they were... You know, they, they were on pace to break the record for most points in the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic and uh, a tough second half for the blue team, to say the least. Will the blue get off the schneid? Maybe next year. He's Len Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Brandon McAnderson will join us in a little over 15 minutes. We uh, have a sports stock market coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. We didn't get a chance yesterday to kind of break down or talk about the KU scrimmage that occurred on Wednesday just because we were so focused on the Round Ball Classic. We'll do that today. We have some player audio to share with K.J. Adams and Kyle Cuff, and then we're going to um, go through the results of the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic points draft that we did yesterday. We have an official loser. We have an official winner. We're going to decide what the punishment, what that person is going to have to do. That coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, plus some NBA Finals talk. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, depending on it. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool, and they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, that's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back and participant in the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic, will join us in about 10 minutes from right now. Our daily poll for today, if you could have picked one of these all-time KU basketball players to have a fifth season, who would you choose? Now, I could add more if you want. Uh, we'll talk this through before I put this up for a poll. I was planning on just for the poll putting up two guys, um, Sharon Collins or Frank Mason. So imagine mm. you have Sharon Collins back for a fifth year, and at that point his fifth year would be the 2010-2011 season, which was already like 2009-2010 was a great team too. 2010-2011 was maybe equally as great, but had it, you know, I, I don't know. 09-010 probably had the better regular season. 10-11 went further in the postseason. Um if you add Sharon Collins, that's that's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, Frank Mason, though, you would add him to that 2017-18 bunch that already made the Final Four, um, and it would get Frank Mason a Final Four, which on its own would be very cool. It, it's hard for me anytime we do hypotheticals with that 17-18 team because it's just like you lost by so much to Villanova. Does anything actually change that? So I don't know if it changes anything, but it's hard 
to think that it might not because, um, I don't know, maybe that, I, I don't know. The problem is, like, defensively defending Villanova, and I don't know if it, it helps that much with it. Um, so, those are the two. I mean, but like I said, you could think of others if you want that would make for, like, interesting hypotheticals here. You could think of, like, Wayne Simeon coming back from the, uh, I think 05-06 was his final season. No, it was, no, it was well before. Was 05 season, 06 right? is when he won the uh, championship with the Heat. That's right. So, okay, so 04 05 was his final season. So if he comes back 05 06, Kansas lost in the first round, but that team was hot to finish the year. They got a, uh, you know, four seed in the NCAA tournament. Maybe they're not a first round out. I, I don't know. It's just hard to see, like, oh, you're a first round out. Like, what's the big deal if you, if you bring him back? So that one maybe becomes a little more difficult. Um, let's see, off the title team, most of those guys are sophomores or juniors, like Rush, Chalmers were juniors. Uh, Darrell Arthur was a sophomore. You could bring back like Sasha Khan or Darnell Jackson, but the 0809 Russell team, Robinson probably. Yeah, Russell Robinson. But the uh, does that change the 0809 team from a Sweet 16 Big 12 champion to all of a sudden like a, a title winner? Probably not. Um, I'm just trying to think of the narrative of who would they be playing with and would they complement each other? So yeah, if you have Sharon Collins in 2010-2011, that's the he already played with the Morris Twins, but he'll play with them in their breakout years when they were right. first-round draft picks. Play with Josh Selby as well, Mario Little, Brady Morningstar, Tyrell Reed uh, as well. And then if you extend Frank Mason, you have a big-time trio with Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, Sophie Mikhailuk, Yudoka Azabuki. Had he, you know, I, he did stay healthy through the majority of the season, just missed a few games here and there, especially in the Big 12 tournament. Silvio de Sosa as well, who really broke out later on. Um, trying to think of who else, but it, you know that's it's basically the gist of it is would they complement each other and really rise themselves to the top? I think is my question. I I think that the ten eleven fit is a lot easier there because of the fact that like if you add Frank to the twenty seventeen eighteen team, um, like what does that mean for Malik Newman? Because Malik right. Newman. You know, starting. How at did the I? End. How did I leave out Malik Newman? <laughs> well, I mean, who knows? Maybe Malik does start next to those guys as well. But then there's not a lot of size there between your one through three. Um, maybe LeGerald Vick's coming off the bench. But the point is, does that right. impact Malik Newman becoming? You know, because he was he was like the best player in the country in the month of March with how well he was shooting it. Uh, does that change things to where you're a better regular season team by having Frank Mason? but it impacts your, your postseason run. I, d I don't know the answer to that. And also, like I said, that doesn't solve your question of that team didn't have much depth uh, at the four position. It didn't have much depth at the five position. It doesn't answer those things. With, with adding Sharon to the 10-11 team, like you look at the VCU game specifically. Yeah. You were missing like shot making, and that would be something that I, I think if you add Sharon Collins to the 10-11 team, they're winning a title. And it's, it's really not even a question. I could that. agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. You could also maybe rise Sean Collins' draft stock and make him a you know probably a first round draft pick and you know have a a lot better career in the NBA than he actually did. So that that could that could possibly be something as well. I, I know I'm just spitballing here, but mm -hmm. you know that that's that's definitely a possibility. But you also have to think about what would that affect uh, in the rotation as well. Maybe you don't have Josh Selby, Mario well, Little might be, starting. You know, that, that might be a positive for everyone around because, you know, Josh Selby comes in, he has that, that amazing game right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And then he's, and I don't think it was all, all the Selby's fault. Like, you know, he, he, I guess, underwhelmed when you assume he's like this high-level recruit and he comes in like that and you, you just expect him to do what like a Josh Jackson or Andrew Wiggins did. And he was dealing with, a, I forget if it was a broken toe or, or something in his foot. And so much so that he was wearing like a, a size on one of his foot of or feet 
of like two sizes too big. It was like mm. a steel toe boot um, because he couldn't risk injuring it more. So like it wasn't always his fault, but the the end result there of him kind of playing through the injury, he only shot I think thirty seven percent from the field. He wasn't ultra efficient necessarily. And so if you have Sharon back to that team, maybe Selby's not playing as much, but maybe that's for the best because maybe it gives him time where he can rest more. Maybe it gives him time where you say, yeah, you we can kind of sit you and, and get you totally healthy and and get you back in and good. I think uh, that would be interesting. And then you also have the other other like um, I think uh, I I don't know domino effect of that where if Sharon is back for a fifth year, does his usage all of a sudden right. make it so that Marcus Morris and Markeith Morris they have less usage, they have less points. So now Marcus Morris isn't Big Twelve Player of the Year; it's Sharon Collins. And maybe Marcus Morris and Markeith Morris come back then the following season for their senior year. Right. And then it delays Thomas Robinson another year, and he's back for his— It's like a whole butterfly effect scenario. That's what I'm saying. And and he's back for his senior year, and now you have Thomas Robinson with Jeff Withey and Ben McElmore in 2012-13. Like, that that creates this ultimate domino of success for KU. I do have one more that I think would have really benefited that is coming off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. You think of the 2013-2014 team. They had Andrew Wiggins and Joel Embiid. Perry Ellis, who was a sophomore at that time, but he was still helping out. Wayne Seldon was a freshman. Didn't really have a true point guard with uh, Nadir Tharp. He became the guy later on. What if you bring back Elijah Johnson for one more year? That'd be a because good Because he was a guy that stood out in 2012-2013 as clutch as he got. You think of the uh, almost 40-point game, or maybe he did reach 40 points on the road against Iowa State, really brought them back by himself, ultimately. Made big shot after big shot after big shot. You get that clutch factor, and you have a guy who's a terrific shooter. He was in his uh, senior year, was a good finisher as well. I wouldn't say Frank Mason-type finisher, but he was still he was up there. He was pretty good. I would say adding Elijah Johnson to a team that struggled because they had a lot of young talent. You know, I mentioned before the experience how that translate between, you know, being young and having an experienced team and the difference that it makes more experience really carries you forward. I think having that experience, I'm not saying it would have prevented a second round upset, but it definitely would have made the team a lot stronger. Well, how about adding Jeff Withy to that team? Like uh, you We know, already had MB. I know well, he did he get playing the tournament. That's so right. You know in hindsight you would get Withy for the tournament. And, and think about that. You play Withy twenty minutes, MB twenty minutes not going to be a better center rotation in the country. You could also do Tyshawn Taylor to the 12-13 team. And uh, I don't know. There's a lot of good options there. But I, I think Frank and Tron stick out because they're two of the greatest players that Bill Self has ever had. So you can vote on that at RCST 1320. He's Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. Brandon McAnderson joins us next. Did you know that on our website, klwn.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059kissfm.com, bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card to. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, you shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Joined now by Brandon McAnderson, former KU Orange Bowl winning running back and member of the Jayhawk Radio Network and also a participant in the Rock Chuck Round Ball Classic. Uh, played last night. How how would you grade your performance in the round ball? I felt like I was doing the beep test in gym class. <laughs> uh, I was 
run to one free throw line, somebody would shoot the three. Then I run to the other free throw line, somebody would shoot the three. So I took the ball out just so I could catch the ball. Um, and also, when you do my introduction, I think it should be Orange Bowl champion, uh, second leading all time football scorer yeah. in Rock Chuck Round Ball history. Uh, so throw that in there. But yeah, it was fun. Uh, you know, they got the pace going uh, late in the game, and it ended up being a super fun ending. There we go. Yeah, we'll, we'll add that to the uh, to the title there. Um, I, have you ever thought about just like trying to cherry pick in, in an event like this? Do you think they would give you the ball if you just stood under the basket? It didn't even play defense for a possession, just to try to get an easy two points. Do you think they would throw you the ball? No. <laughs> no, I mean, half the time they don't even make eye contact. So, I mean, it's, it's going to be hard to throw somebody the ball you're not looking at. Okay, I, I, I'm trying to come up with solutions here, how we can get you more involved. Have you thought about, I, I know this sounds a little crazy, but we saw one last night. Have you thought about taking a charge? No. No. I mean, I thought about, you know, I saw Brady kind of take the role of um, charity basketball villain, mm-hmm. and I don't know why I hadn't thought of that. Um, that probably would have been a good, you know, a charity basketball heel would have been a good uh, a good change direction for me, but I wasn't smart enough. Brady took the mantle. You know, now everybody's just going to have to eat his dust. So I need to figure out some kind of role beyond uh, stand there. Uh, so I'm working on it. I'm, 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 I'm workshopping some ideas. Yeah, I think you know you could just be like the the hard nosed, dirty role player. Not not dirty, dirty, but like you know you're setting screens out there in a charity basketball game. Um, you're like I said, you're you're taking charges um, on the defensive end. You're cherry picking offensively. I, I think there's ways that um, we can we can kind of add to the storyline of Brandon McAnderson in the Rock Chalk Round Ball Classic. And uh, I don't know, maybe that would just like you said, maybe that would just set people off the wrong way. Um, so I don't know. I I, I could see it going one way or the other. <laughs> a lot of options for me here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I did want to talk a little KU football before we get into some uh, finals talk because the players start to arrive. Summer classes started up. I forget if it was earlier this week. I think it started up this Monday. So you start to see some of the freshmen come in and and some of the new players and everything. And, and I'm just generally curious because. You know, a lot of times we just think about this as just like the physical aspect of things, or if, if we think about it from the mental aspect of the sport, it's from do you understand the playbook and where you're supposed to be on certain plays and the scheme. Um, but we don't really think about just like the lifestyle portion of it. Ha- have you seen like does that happen where where players get sent off to college and, and now they're away from home? And obviously for you, it, it probably wasn't something you really had to factor in because. You know, you were you were a Lawrence kid, but did you see that happen at all? Where where talented guys would come in and they just couldn't make that transition from high school to college, whether it was just about the the lifestyle, being on their own, or, or just being too far away from their family. Yeah, it happened often. I would say it was more a product of you know some of these guys come from you know I've been blessed enough that you know I come from a working class family, so I didn't have a lot of at home worries. I see often very talented people um, can't compartmentalize their lives because they roll the role they play in their family. So they might be the breadwinner. They might be the mentor. You know, they might have roles beyond what their age should suggest. And it makes college tougher. You know, it makes it tougher to, to sit down and focus on just playing football when you have a hundred other things going on. So sometimes it's more than just um, the surroundings, it could be, you know, personal connections, it could be responsibilities. Like there's a lot of things that go into it for these young men. Uh, but hopefully they're all in a comfortable place where they can, 
um, you know, have some time to focus on themselves and focus on their careers because I have seen it go the other way. Is there a player or two that you look at and you're excited to see uh, the jump that they could possibly make from what they did last year to what they are, are going to, you know, turn out to be like this next year? Because like, for, like obviously everybody is going to take, you know, jumps and, and have improvement in some way, but maybe guys that you think could take the biggest jump from what we saw last year to next year. Yeah, there's some interesting guys. I think I'd go first at cornerback. That was a young, young group last year. Uh, but a competitive group, a talented group, uh, guys like Jacoby Bryant, you know, he was a guy that was, I wouldn't say he was up and down. I would say that he was a little inconsistent in terms of his performance, but you saw the upside in a lot of games. Guys like Romello Dotson early in the season was solid as a rock. Confidence started to waver towards the end. You got, saw guys like Shad Dabney, you know, step in and be competitive on the road against Big 12 teams and, and look like a guy that might be something. So I'm, I'm interested in that position specifically because I think there's a lot of talent there and a lot of youth. Um, just on that defensive side of the ball and the offense, I'll stay wide. I'll stay wide receivers as well. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. You know, the quarterback situation, who can you build a rhythm with? Can you consistently perform? You know, can we see Luke Grimm take that, um, take that step of staying healthy? And, you know, because when he's healthy and playing, he's been productive. Can he stay healthy for long term? You know, can Lawrence Arnold match some of his big games and be a more consistent producer? You know, can he can he work on his intermediate game so he he has more to bring to the table? Uh, McBride's a guy we're really excited about because he can fly, but can he add some stuff to his game? Can he help us in like the gadget game, the reverse game? You know, same can be said for Trevor Wilson, a guy that built a lot of chemistry with Jason Bean. Didn't quite get there uh, with Jalen Daniels, but a guy that showed also that he can go up and attack at the point of attack. He can uh, make people miss, and he's got a lot of top end speed. So I think that's a group where we saw some people do some nice things. It'd be nice to see him take the next step to be consistent producers. When we look at the linebacker position, that obviously struggled a little bit last year for KU. Uh, they bring in Craig Young, who's kind of that that linebacker safety kind of hybrid guy. Eric Gilliard's more of your you know going to pop you on a, on a running play or something like that. Um, but there still is going to be a, a lot of contribution from guys who are returning to the program. We've we've heard a lot from whether it was Lance Leipold or whoever about some improvement uh, of some guys uh, at that linebacker spot. I think notably Taiwan Berryhill has been a name we've heard a lot of bit, uh, about. Uh, when you saw some of the, the issues that KU had in that kind of second level of the defense last year, how much of that was just getting familiar with the scheme to where that would be something that would be an automatic you know, inroad for improvement headed into this year, and how much of it was just kind of physical development? So I think the physical part, they were close to where they should be. Um, and let me just say, Rich Miller was a standout. Yes. Now, it, it, it's hard for him to be a standout on a team that's not performing well, but he played all three positions. He flew around the field. When they really got competitive at the end of the season, it had a lot to do with him. He is a rock, and he's a leader, and that guy's going to be big time this year. So I'm going to exclude him from this conversation. But I do think some of our younger linebackers, um, they struggled with learning how to play. You know, you think you're you're in college, you know, this shouldn't be that difficult, but you got to remember – Wherever they were before they got here, they were the best player in the field. So they were able to do things in high school that don't translate to a college football field. And then you're talking about uh, under Les Miles, they're just out there. And I don't mean that as a, a negative towards the coaching staff, but these guys are 18 years old. 
So they're not going to be out there playing with technique because they're not going to be strong enough to do that. They're not going to have the strength and understanding to do that. So a lot of what they're going to be doing is guessing and gambling. Guessing and gambling gets you ends up with you know three tackles for loss, but you give up three hundred yards rushing. So I think they're just. I think it was just a process of learning how to play the game the right way, uh, learning how to use their strength and speed to fit into a scheme, as opposed to being in a situation where they were physically overmatched and trying to do everything they could to kind of be successful and to be competitive. So I think that's the difference. Is now they're learning how to play the position the right way, and they can use all their skills to get there. We're talking with Brandon McAnderson here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, NBA Finals Game 4 is tonight. Boston currently leads 2-1. The uh, third game in the series was kind of Boston almost did uh, to Golden State what what they had been doing with a a strong third quarter and and kind of finishing out the third quarter there. And then they uh, just kind of sprinted to the finish line there. Uh, What have you seen from Boston that has, I I guess, led to this 2-1 series lead with a chance to take that 3-1 stranglehold tonight? I think it's been fascinating to watch considering that, you know, the Golden State Warriors were the original team that could put, not the original, but the original present-day team that could put five people out there that could play offense and defense. So they didn't have to sub. They could switch. They were comfortable. They could kind of do what they wanted. They have become, Golden State has become more of a specialist team. You know, Clay can shoot, but he's not as good as he was on defense pre-injury. Uh, Jordan Pills, an explosive scorer who can't guard anyone. You know, Draymond's an, you know, one of the great defenders of all time and cannot score. They don't even look at him when he has the basketball. Same could be said for Gary Payton. So I think that Kerr has a bigger challenge of trying to fit which pieces can benefit Steph Curry because Steph Curry has become the whole offense and the Celtics just don't have a weak league on defense. So they switch everything and they take Golden State out of all the back cuts and the the beautiful screening and the dribble handoffs. They take them out of that stuff. So really Golden State becomes like a lot of other NBA teams, a pick and roll team. And Steph Curry can do it. Obviously, he's been out of this world in this series and the whole playoffs. When he plays pick and roll, he'll get 30. But the problem is, is what happens to everyone else? So when you play pick and roll, they can't play as many non-shooters as they normally do, you know, because of all the movement and the shooting gravity of all their players. So I think what Boston has done is reduced Golden State to a regular offensive basketball team. And you can see they really struggle when they don't get turnovers. Because one, it's not how they play. You know, they play fast and they move the basketball and everybody touches it and, you know, Usually that doesn't, you know, you can't get them out of it by playing non-shooters. They've played Looney and Draymond together a lot throughout the playoffs, and it's not been a big deal. In this series, they can't play two and three non-shooters because the way that the style of offense that they have to play the score is so much more dependent on spacing. So, you know, they can put Otto Porter in, but then you lose defensive rebounding that Looney would give you. So I think Steve Kerr has a lot of challenges, and I think that, you know, Boston is just inconsistent enough handling the basketball that it'll still be a long series. Um, but I do think this will be Boston series. Yeah, it's it's just funny because, you know, for so many I guess years with with the Warriors in the past, it was you know they have all these offensive weapons and gosh Draymond Green like it feels so far removed from the point when he was able to give you a twenty or, or maybe even thirty points on just like a given night. Now it's like can you even just get double digits from him as great as he is on the uh, defensive side of the ball and like it, I don't know Andrew Wiggins legitimately has a case for being the second best player on the Warriors right now, which. 
uh, is really cool for from one standpoint, from just like a Kansas perspective, but also when you look at the Celtics and you say, well, their second best player is Jalen Brown, who is a really good, really athletic and, and switchable wing, which really is helpful in the playoffs. Uh, it becomes a little bit tougher to figure that out because of the fact that Clay Thompson has just kind of slowly worked back from the injury here, and, and who knows if we'll ever see kind of what we saw three, four years ago from Clay Thompson again, just consistently. But but who do you look at for the Warriors that has to step up then for them to win tonight in Game Four, and uh, I guess for them to to come back and, and win the series? I think it has to be Poole because if you look at their roster. The- the Warriors don't have big athletic wings. They do. They're just too young to play in this kind of series. You know, I, I figure like if Kaminga was like already 23 or 22, he'd be the perfect answer because he could give you some offense. He'd give you that dynamic athleticism. But, you know, he's 19. <laughs> you can't really put him out there and, and think that he's going to make an impact. Same could kind of be said for a guy like Moses Moody, who's, you know, a bigger, taller wing that could play defense and shoot threes. So they don't have the answers that they need right now, and I think they will have those answers in the future, and it'll, it'll keep them competing. But looking at it right now, it has to be Jordan Poole. And, and they're, playing, they're playing drop coverage on him on ball screens, and he can't affect the game the way that he used to because he's lost confidence in his three ball. And that three ball kind of sets up his driving ability, sets up his ability to get to the line, all these different things I think are just wiped off the table. So what happens is all the Steph Curry bench minutes are, are a massacre, you know, because he can't get things going to where in other series he might go for 30, you know, when he has the ball in his hands. We've seen him distribute. We've seen him get to the rim. But I think that, that his confidence in that three ball has caused, you know, he's losing separation that he would normally get. And I think that's kind of just, you know, fractured his game and it's fractured the way they want to play and then plus he, he can't play defense at all <laughs> so if he's not scoring then he's a liability uh on the other end and you see you know brown and tatum and even marcus smart hunt him at will so um i think it's got to be pool pool's got to be more competitive on defense and he's got to start getting that three ball going to kind of give them you know be able to take a breath when, when steph curry's not in the game well i'll say this um because i won a long competitive series and everything if Boston wins tonight, it, it kind of feels like the series is is over. It could still go six or seven games, but you'd be up 3-1, even though two of the three would be in Golden State. Boston's been so good on the road in this series. I will say, though, that would be you know fun storylines if you get to a point where Boston does go up 3-1, and it presents Golden State with the opportunity to come back from 3-1 after they lost a 3-1 lead in the finals a handful of years ago. And also, if you're just working the path to coming back from 3-1 potentially. Uh, If Golden State wins game five at home, then the big game you're going to be looking at is game six on the road in Boston, and who better than game six, Clay? Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, and like I said, I am all, I've had a lot of fun watching the Warriors be the Warriors again without KD, and and I'm optimistic about what they can do, and you've seen Boston turn the ball over. You know, like it's nothing and lose games they should not lose. There's no way they should have went seven with the Heat or the Bucks. So I imagine that the, the Warriors have are, are better, you know, not necessarily better teams than those two, because I do think the Bucks were the best team when healthy. Uh, but definitely as accomplished and as experienced and, and have, you know, one of the best players in the history of the league. So I think they can do it. It's just a matter of if the Celtics don't give them those opportunities, how do they get it? Because, you know, Tatum hasn't played a great whole game. Uh, Jalen Brown hasn't played a great whole game. You know, you, if you look at it, most of their their best whole game guys have been 
you know, uh, Derek White had one, and Horford had one, and uh, Marcus Smart had one last game. But their stars have not been completely dominant for for the duration of the game. So, you know, I I think that Boston still has a they can play a lot better, and that's not a good sign for Golden State. All right, I got some uh, quick fire questions for you here. Over under one and a half games from here on decided by single digits. Okay. We haven't had any so far. All these playoff games, they're just it's blowout after blowout. We've had long series, but uh, just constant blowouts seemingly. Uh, if I give you over under .5 games decided by one possession, what would you take? Under. So you don't think any will be decided? That's that's like unfortunate to me. That's very unfortunate. Like I would I would almost rather it be a four or five game series if all of the games were close than be a seven game series where only two of them are decided by like six or seven points. Yeah, I just don't see it. I mean, they, their offense is, is Steph Curry or nothing. So I don't see how – and if you watch Boston, look at the look at the final scores in these three games. Look at the final scores against Boston all year. Nobody's scoring 120 on Boston or 115. They're scoring 108 and under. And Golden State's been 108 and under in every game. So in that way, is it possible for Boston to play poorly enough to have that or Golden State to play well enough on defense to have that? Yes, but I don't see it. Um, so this will just be fodder that I don't really care about. But you know if Boston wins the the finals, you're going to have certain shows that are, is Jason Tatum now the best player in the NBA? And and I don't really think that's even a discussion. Um, so I'm going to ask you a, a maybe – uh, a, a little more nuanced one. Is Jason Tatum a top five player in the NBA even? He's a top five player in the NBA this season. Um, I don't think that's even debatable, just especially because of his two-way impact. But what excites me about that type of argument is that if Boston does win this championship, when's the last championship, NBA championship team that's two best players were pre-prime stars? I mean, it's been a long time. And if you figure Jalen Brown and Tatum are 25 and under and aren't even don't seem that close to what they could be at their peak, I think that's exciting. I think that's a more exciting argument. But I think Tatum as a top-five player this year, I mean, I don't think that's debatable. So top-five season, and if he wins a championship, that stamps him. And then you'll see next season if he does something similar again, and then you have to really have the conversation. I think I would agree. I just there's so many great players in the NBA, like Luka so Doncic, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Steph Curry, um, Kawhi Leonard. Whenever he's back, and, and who knows what he'll look like when he's back. That I don't think it's like a, yeah, exactly. Kevin Durant. Like I, I don't think it's like a slam dunk lock. He's for sure a top ten player, probably in that top eight range. I probably I, I agree with you. I think he he is top five right now, but like it's it's not that crazy to me if you were to say he's like six or seven. Uh, okay, last. Right. One I got for you. Who wins a title sooner following this season? So whatever happens this year, after that is when the timeline starts. Golden State or Boston? Hmm. Golden State. I mean, they've got a lot. They've got a lot of moves that could be made. If you think about last year, they um, and this is not a. I think Boston's going to continue to ascend, and they're going to find pieces to fit around their guys and, and improve through the draft. I think they'll be around for a long time. I think Golden State's interesting because they have all those – they have a lot of prospects right now, and you know I think they can fit an interesting team, and you see the kind of gravity that Steph Curry has. Just imagine if if Golden State would have – imagine if their starting center right now was like Miles Turner. 
like that, they would be a much different team because then they'd have a, a guy that could shoot threes and defend the rim. And everybody knows Miles Turner's been available every year, basically the last four years. And maybe Golden State didn't see that as an option, but it's an interesting thought, you know, to, to say if in this exact game, if they had, uh, you know, let's say they had Miles Turner, or let's say instead of Jordan Poole, they had Zach Levine. You know, the, so just think about let's exchange one of those players. Let's say Loon, instead of that, instead of that being Looney, that's Miles Turner. I think I'd feel pretty good about the Warriors. Instead of that being uh, Jordan Poole, that's Zach Levine. I'd feel pretty good about the Warriors. And and those aren't absurd statements. <laughs> they have the assets to go out and get someone of that caliber. So I would say Golden State. Yeah, and you know, maybe if, if James Wiseman ever hits on, on being what they thought he was when they right. drafted him, then there's your answer right there. I, I think I agree with you, plus the Celtics, what you mentioned earlier with thinking the Bucks are the best team, I agree with you, if Chris Middleton was healthy, and they have them in the same conference, which I think makes it uh, a little bit more difficult. Well, BMAC, I appreciate you hopping on and taking some time out of your day, and uh, nice seeing you at the Rock Truck Rumble Classic last night, and uh, have a good weekend. All right, man. Thanks for having me. That was Brandon McAnderson joining us here on Rock Truck Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson with Lane Gillespie. One hour down, two to go. You're listening in on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, or the KLWN app, or you're listening in the future on the Best of RCST podcast. Coming up next, our sports stock market closing bell on a Friday. This is RCST. Four o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening in on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me is Lane Gillespie today on our Friday and it is past time that the stock market has officially closed. So with that being said, it's time to get to our sports stock market. First up, stocks up on NBA contracts. Aaron Donald got a massive contract extension with the LA Rams. You might be saying, what do you mean Aaron Donald's not an NBA player? Of course he's not. Aaron Donald got a three-year, $95 million extension. It's technically a two-year extension to his current deal. Um, Again, $95 million over three years. That is a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And Aaron Donald is the best defensive player um, in football. He is, you know, one of the best defensive players, honestly, we have ever seen. Honestly, that has ripple effects on Chris Jones, to be honest. He's going to be a free agent coming up here. Um, And... I don't know if the plan is the Chiefs extended him uh, already once. Will it happen again, especially if that's the type of money? I mean, we just saw with Tyreek Hill, they let him walk. And and if Chris Jones is going to be asking for $30 million, I don't know. He might not be a Kansas City Chiefs for much much longer after uh, this year or maybe two years from now. Um, But nonetheless, stocks up on NBA contracts because Aaron Donald, even though he is, again, the best defensive player in football, one of the best defensive players, one of the best players in football we've just ever seen he's now making buddy healed money which like buddy healed we all know buddy healed unbelievable college player he's been a solid pro player give you 15 points per game but he's not like an all-star or anything like that not like a top 50 player in the nba harrison barnes uh another player who got 95 million now that was over four years so that's a little different but tobias harris like tobias harris is a guy who has been under uh, a lot um of scrutiny because he's a, a guy who will give you 20 points, maybe 18 points per game, solid efficiency, not really an all-star player, but like a good player for the Sixers that, again, is under scrutiny at times because maybe he doesn't do enough in the playoffs. He got a five-year $180 million deal seven several years ago. That's $36 million per year. Ben Simmons is on a similar contract. 
And then Kristaps Porzingis, who literally got traded away from the Mavericks because he was not good enough for the contract money, is on a five-year, nearly $160 million uh, deal, which is about $32 million per year, which is about what Aaron Donald is going to be making. So uh, if you're just like a, a good NBA player, not even like a uh, top 40, top 50 NBA player, just be a solid, good NBA player, you're probably going to make about as much money as the best player defensively in the game. I mean, money makes uh, is starting to make absolutely no sense to me because Aaron Donald is without a doubt a guy that you do not even want to stand face-to-face against if you're an offensive lineman, let alone just an average Joe on the street. Aaron Donald is a guy to fear on the football field, and he's only making chump change compared to what a lot of NBA stars are making. Well, this all goes to the salary cap. Obviously, in football, you have a you know two hundred whatever million dollar cap for fifty three players, and and yes, a certain amount are going to be on like minimum deals. In the NBA, you only have to pay. I, I don't know if if all seventeen with the two way contracts count to it, but fifteen guys on the roster count to it to a salary cap that you know is is kind of nearing around the same amount of money, and so um, that's kind of how that works out. But it just it makes you think because the NFL is, you know, obviously more successful than the NBA. The NBA is very successful, but the NFL is making more money than the NBA is. It just makes you think, why is the salary cap not even higher for NFL teams that they would be making bigger chunks of change? And and, and we're starting to get to a point, honestly, like you just see, I think Tiger Woods uh, is in the billionaire club. Forbes announced that today. They announced LeBron James. I think they announced somebody else. Um, you start to see that happening. It's going to become more and more popular, more and more often that that occurs. The more that we see guys start to get $30, $50 million a year in the NFL, in addition to like all the endorsement stuff they make. And and it really does make you wonder, like, at what point is is this like too much money to play a sport? And it's weird because like I'm I'm always pro player over owner. and, And so that's where the line comes here, because the money is obviously there. They are they are making the product worth this much. So they deserve to get that much. So I get it. But, like, it's just, it, it's alarming to see that, you know, like, for instance, um, like I said, Christoph Porzingis making $32 million per year. Or Carl uh, Anthony Towns is due for, like, an extension for the Minnesota Timberwolves right now. He could be making, when he's, like, 32, 33 years old, at the end of that extension, $50 million, $60 million a year. Which, like, think about that. 50 or $60 million a year to play uh, a sport, a game, like, I, it's not a question because, like I said, once you boil it down to say there is X amount of money that's being made, of course they deserve that money. Of course they do because they deserve a cut of making the the NBA this worth to where it is worth this much money. And, and I do like seeing the players get paid. And, and if you think that's a lot of money, think about how much the owners are making. So I get it from that standpoint. I'm just saying from a standpoint of how much money is being brought in in the sports. Like, have we have we prioritized the wrong things in life? Probably <laughs> is the answer. As I sit here on a sports show, uh, stocks down on Nickelback. Are you a fan of Nickelback? A little bit. I, I, I would. I don't say that I listen mm-hmm. to their albums. There's just songs from time to time that sound catchy. Yeah, I. Uh, that's a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. And and I think the more and more people you meet, the more and more people you realize have the guilty pleasure of being like, yeah, I, I kind of like Nickelback, and I I kind of like some of the songs there. Like again, I I couldn't name you like an album, but. You play, uh, what is it, Rockstar? I'll yep. have the quesadilla or something like that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm singing along. We're having a good time. So, like, 
at some point, it's going to cross over from all these people have this like guilty pleasure and you like to like make fun of it maybe, uh, but you enjoy it a little bit, that it's just going to be a thing. Uh, nonetheless, stock is down on Nickelback because the Angels tried snapping their losing streak by using Nickelback for all of the players' walk-up songs at the games. They were riding a 13-game losing streak, and they were like, we got to change something up. We got to do something differently, and it didn't work. They lost one nothing <laughs> to the Boston Red Sox. So Nickelback is not the fixer for long losing streaks. They lost 14 in a row at that point. The good Who news, comes though, up with that idea? I don't That's what know. I want to know. It's got to be a player, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I can't imagine. Gosh, we have to we have to change our losing streak. We have to play better. What should we do? I know. Nickelback. Right. Well, I, I, just, I, I imagine like Mike Trout is like, you know, this is what we got to do. I just like, if you had like a marketing person come down and they're like, hey, I have this idea. Like, we're going to play. All the players are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, um, but hey, it didn't work. The good news is they did win the next game. They won yesterday. So they snapped the 14-game losing streak. All it took was a uh, another great performance, both on the mound and hitting from Shohei Otani. So uh, what you're telling me is whenever Nickelback is in any conversation, you should wait a day for positive results. I guess maybe that's the lesson here. Maybe that's the lesson. Don't expect immediate results. It just takes 24 hours for that to uh, to seethe in, for, for that to come into effect. Okay, stock is up on uh, the new Big 12. A settlement has been reached to uh, officially leave the AAC for the three AAC teams. We're going to be coming over to the Big 12, and it is official. They will come over July 1st of 2023 in the summer. The schools got off on a pretty good deal, too. Each school is going to pay the AAC $18 million over a 14-year span, so a little over a million a year, which that negotiation fee that they settled down, that's over. it's about 60% um, lower than they were originally asking for. So they saved some good money here. They get to join the Big 12 as soon as the summer of 2023. Um, of course, for BYU, they don't have to worry about it. They're an independent in football. I don't know if they have to pay a, a smaller fee to get out of the WCC in other sports or if that was something that the contract was already coming up or that um, that was just never written into the contract because they weren't providing football for them, so it wasn't making all sorts of money. I, I don't know, but the, the plan is all four of those teams are going to be joining the Big 12 for the 2023-24 season. So this next year will be the final season with the current iteration of the Big 12. It, it, it's interesting, though, because we still haven't heard of, of what the plans are going to be for right. Oklahoma and Texas. I was going to say, can we also say stocks up for conferences being even more confusing? Yeah. Because the Big 12 is going to move from, as we see now, 10 teams to 14. Because Oklahoma, as as far as we know now, Oklahoma and Texas are here to stay until 2025. And they're looking, and I just saw an article, possibility of two seven-team divisions in the Big 12. They used to have, you know, two six-team divisions before, you know, you know, before there are only 10 uh, teams in the Big 12. But I'm also interested to see what those divisions would look like. It used to be North and South divisions. You might go with an East and West division now with the Big 12. Yeah, it's a lot more laterally uh, diversified and, and spread out there. Because instead of the easternmost team being possibly Texas or even KU for that, but Iowa State actually mm. being the easternmost team, now the easternmost uh, team is going to be UCF yeah. out by way of UCF, Florida. West Virginia, Cincinnati. And then, and then out all... west, BYU and Utah. Mm -hmm. So that's – it's also – travel's going to be very interesting for the Big 12 as well. Yeah, and that's what's interesting to me. If Texas and Oklahoma do end up staying through the end of that media deal, which it's that 2025-26 season would be the final year that they would be intact – and, and, and honestly, this is a question even when they do leave. Um, like you said, do they split it up into two divisions or not? That would be the common way of doing things. 
But it seems like we're venturing away from that. Uh, the Pac-12 earlier, you know, a few weeks ago said right. they're getting rid of divisions. And I don't know, maybe that could be the case of what the Big Ten or the SEC end up doing. If that becomes like the popular thing, you wonder if they just won't do divisions. And I have no idea how that would work. I have no idea how that would work from a scheduling standpoint. Um, maybe it just becomes something where there's no divisions, but you have like scheduling partners where it's like we're going to play the teams right. more often that are closer to us. I mean, um, I know, I know. It used to be you always every year you always play the team that is in your division, but in the other division you would leave out a couple of teams here and there. Yeah, like because, the SEC has like protected rivalries across right. divisions, but then the the downside to that is like in the SEC is currently constructed, like you would only host a team from the other division. It was like once every twelve years or something like that, and you don't want that to happen. Um, but I I do like the 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 idea. The beauty of divisions is that. You settle it head-to-head by playing everybody in your own division so that you get the best team out of that division to represent versus the best team out of the other division, and then it works itself out from there. Personally, I love that. I I do, too. And if you just have the the two best teams conference-wise, but, for instance, in the Big 12, you have 14 teams, you're only playing eight or nine conference games, the schedules are going to be super imbalanced. So, like, how do you know that you actually got the second-best team in the Big 12 championship game, for instance, in football, and that the team who didn't finish third is actually, you know, the best team, hypothetically, at that point in time. Maybe they lost to the first best team early in the season, but they had a player injured, and then they just mm-hmm. had a harder schedule than Fair. the team who finished second. team who finishes second gets in the Big 12 championship. team who finished third doesn't even get a shot at beating the team they lost to earlier, even though maybe at this point in the year they're the better team. I, I don't like that at all. I don't even. Yeah. Um. So... I, I would say that um, it's going to be very complicated. I, I kind of hope they do divisions. I am a little bit bummed. Stocks down on on the basketball side of things. Um, it's actually right. stocks up in terms of uh, the teams they're bringing in. Like Houston is awesome. Cincinnati has uh, been uh, a little bit down over the past couple of years, but they've typically been really good. And uh, I, I'm a little bummed we won't have the the head to head unless they're planning on once OU and Texas leave, you play like 22 conference games. But that uh, probably would be a little bit much. Uh, okay, stock is down on family. We had this one a, a couple weeks ago, and, uh, you know, Vin Diesel did send some mean letters to us uh, that, you know, he doesn't like it when we talk about family in a negative light. But here we go anyway. <laughs> um, 2024 quarterback C.J. Carr has committed to Notre Dame. And if the last name sounds familiar, Carr is the grandson of Lloyd Carr, the great Michigan head coach who I think led him to a title in the uh, late 90s, was around for some Rose Bowl appearances, really good coach for the University of Michigan. He's the grandson. Again, Michigan and Notre Dame, that is a rivalry. Those are two schools that don't really like each other. He's going to Notre Dame. Um, And then Dean Spanos, who is the owner of the L.A. Chargers, is being sued by his sister (laughs) for, uh, quote, in the, the, uh, I guess, legal documents, misogynistic behavior, self-dealing, which I have no idea what that means, and repeated breaches of fiduciary duty. So, uh, yeah, if you're a family member, things are not going well for you right now. Stocks down on family. And final one for the stock market closing bell. Stock is up on OU softball breaking records. Unbelievable team. Yeah. Just won the title. Uh, they beat Texas last night. They win 2-0 in the Women's College World Series. They go to the final against the Longhorns, and they just disp- – yesterday they were down 2 nothing, and then they just went on a roll and 
Ended up not really being close at the end. It was 10-2. Texas had a chance. They scored three runs. Tightened it up a little. Made it 10-5. But Oklahoma ends up winning. They blew out game one as well. Um, so not only did they win the Women's College World Series, they absolutely annihilated the path all along the way, all along the season, and in the College World Series specifically. Here are some things they set records for. 17 home runs during the Women's College World Series. That was a record. And funny enough, the team whose record they beat was themselves. They did it last <laughs> year. They hit 15 of them. Um, they also scored the most runs across the Women's College World Series. 64 runs scored over the course of the uh, Women's College World Series. They broke the record for most runs scored in the championship series portion as well, which is just that final two where you play the best of three. They scored 26. And again, what I said earlier, they only played two games. <laughs> yeah. You can play up to three games. You have the best of three series. They only played two, and they still broke the record of all time for a Women's College World Series. Most runs scored in those final two, or uh, in that final championship series. Um, and they also wound up leading the country in average home runs and ERA. They became the first team since 2017 to win back-to-back. And, of course, uh, star hitter Jocelyn Alo. I, I don't know if it's Alo or Alo. She is the uh, all-time NCAA leader for home runs. She hit 515 this season. Just an absolute wagon that they were all season long. Wow. I think you could ask anybody, and they would agree, Oklahoma softball from this season, top five collegiate team of all time. All I- of All of college athletics. Not just softball, all of college athletics. You look at all the teams in history, I think they're easily a top five. It's hard, you know, to argue against it. And, you know, you could say, well, this team, my my football team was undefeated or whatever. But it's like, it's so much harder to, like, you have three losses over the course of a 60-game softball season. It is so hard not to just have a, a stretch where you lose a series randomly in baseball or softball. They were absolutely dominant. Yeah, it is one of the most dominant college seasons, like you said, that... But certainly we've seen in uh, our lifetime. All right, that is the stock market bell for the sports week. He's Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. We're going to get some more KU basketball talk and discuss that scrimmage from Wednesday on the other side. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Half past the hour, almost, here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is... FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Lane Gillespie. I am Derek Johnson. The uh, KU scrimmage was on Wednesday, and I was out at Jefferson's for the live show when it occurred. Lane went out there and uh, watched the game. Um, There were some stats that came out uh, afterwards, points from some of the players. Now, there were some notables that didn't play in the game. We should probably mention that. Bobby Pettiford still recovering from his his, side hip injury. Uh, Jalen Wilson was just not there. I'm assuming he was still coming back from, like, the whole NBA, um, I guess, process there. And then Kevin McCuller did not play. He had, like, just arrived to KU. MJ Rice, like, just arrived that morning, too, and he was just like, no, let's do it. Um, (laughs) So, nonetheless, uh, Lane, you were there. Yeah. Anything stick out to you 
as far as the scrimmage goes. I gotta say, I was impressed by MJ Rice, given that he relied he arrived to Lawrence at four o'clock in the morning, and he was still able to ball out. I believe ended with eighteen points, is what I put down yep, or something 18. like that. And then Joe Yesifu, I think, is going to be a hidden talent and a possible star this upcoming year for KU. He finished with 30 points. He hit six three-pointers. At one point, he was four for four before finally bricking one. Uh, but he also had, I put down that he had three dunks, and those weren't little uh, cherry-picking breakaway, just little tap Rim slams. Razors, no. Yeah. yeah. No, they were full-on tomahawk, back-scratching dunks, one of them in traffic. Dude could throw it down with the best of them, and he's only about six feet tall, six foot one. I know we had that little, you know, discrepancy of who, of how tall they were with Devon Dotson. Earlier. No, I I'll be honest. I, I think Joe Yesfu is probably Yesfu. closer to 5'10", 5'11". Something like that. Yeah. The dude's the he's he throws down. He throws down with the best of them. I know we you talked about earlier this week the phenomenal dunk that he had in the uh, first four game against Wichita State uh, uh, when he was uh, with DePaul. Mm. With uh, the, uh, Drake. Drake. Yeah. My bad. I knew it was a, I knew it was a school that started with a D, and that wasn't Duke. Uh, but yeah, with uh, with Drake, and I knew he was going to be a special fit when he came to KU. Obviously, last year didn't get a whole lot of playing time given the star talent that KU had. I think he's going to have a tremendous amount of playing time next year, and I think he could be something special. Yeah, he's a, a very interesting case because of the fact that you know. Um, I mean, is KU going to start three wings, or will it be a second guard? And uh, no matter what, whether they start a second guard or whether they start three wings, like there's going to be another lead guard who plays. Now, there could be room for all three lead guard or, or four three lead guards to play. Um, you have Pettiford, Yesifu, Kyle Cuff. Obviously, we know like Dewan Harris is going to start. He's locked into minutes. He's locked into the rotation. Uh, between those other three, there's a possibility that two of the three end up playing as far as the regular season. But once it gets to the postseason, if you are playing three wings, that's going to take up so many of the minutes that, like, for instance, we saw this past year. Um, when Remy Martin was hurt, Joe Yesifu got time, and he was getting extended minutes, playing 15, 20 minutes a game, and he was the backup point guard. But KU was starting three wings, so that was taking up majority of the lineups. You weren't seeing a ton of lineups with two guards next to each other because, again, majority of the, those lineups were featuring a third wing as opposed to a second guard. And so, um, once Remy Martin came back, Joe Yesifu didn't really play much. Basically, if KU wants to play how they did this past year with all those wings, that means you probably look at it as far as the rotation for the big games, the, the rotation that Bill Self wants when it's a game he really wants to go with the guys he trusts, the rotation for March Madness and the NCAA tournament and the Big 12 tournament and the postseason and everything. That rotation is usually seven to eight guys. And we've talked about this recently, how you know you go down the list of, of all these guys and, and you don't have many spots left. You maybe have one spot left. You maybe have two spots left. There is a spot for the backup point guard. But I guess the point I'm making is there's probably only one spot for a backup point guard. Right. If we assume they're going to play that same way with all the wings. So that makes that battle between Kyle Cuff, Bobby Pettiford, and Joe Yesifu so paramount because that would be one guy. And we saw with Remy Martin, even though he was technically the backup point guard, like there was still a sizable role there. He's still playing 2025. 20, if he is, you know, feeling it that game and, and it's a good matchup for him, maybe he's touching high 20s, 30 minutes per game. I think that's how you look at it at whoever kind of wins that job. And I guess you could say, well, if 25 minutes are available, then couldn't it be split up with 15 to one guy and 10 to the other? Yeah, yeah, it could. But 
again, going back to the idea of how many guys Bill Self typically plays in a rotation, there's usually such a short amount of the guys that he trusts the most. And if Joe Yesifu, I mean, by all accounts, seemed to do a lot of things that Bill Self would value and that Bill Self would earn that trust from. You're talking about a guy who um, played solid defense, got up into defender or, or as a defender into other offensive players last season. You're talking about a guy who, uh, whenever Bill Self would, would kind of talk about him, he'd said, you know, he was he's still thinking through the game and we're trying to get him to unlock that just athleticism and, and just play kind of mentality. But some of the ways he would say it would be kind of complimentary in the fact that, like, you know, he, he just, Joe is a people pleaser and he, he wants to do what we tell him, right. um, which is another way of saying he's coachable. Uh, which is is a good thing. So, like, it takes time to process, obviously. But if you're coachable and you play good defense, and that's the importance of this right here. We we met with him earlier in the week, and, and one of the things he kept saying, working on his shot, working on his scoring, he wants to this year show he's more of a scorer than he showed this past season. We saw it in his final time at Drake, but we didn't really get to see it this past year. So, I, I, I don't want to put too much value on this because, again, you're missing – two of your projected starters in Wilson McCuller. You're missing Bobby Pettiford. Um, it's also just a camp scrimmage. It's not like the coaches are there calling out plays. Could just be, like, if we watched every practice that happened in between games, we would have a lot of different opinions on things that were going to happen. So you don't want to overvalue what happens in this. But it is a another piece of data to say that, and, and kind of backs up those things that Joe Yesifu has been saying, and also to the idea that, KU could have a really good defense, and KU is going to need scoring. KU is going to need shot making. If you have a guy that can do that, like Joe Yesifu, you probably have the leg up for that backup point guard spot. So, again, I, I don't want to overvalue it and just say that because of that, that's why he's going to be playing over Bobby Pettiford. No, I'm still very high on Bobby Pettiford. I could see Pettiford being that guy. But if Joe Yesifu continues what he did in that game, it's hard not to see him being that other point guard with Dewan Harris. I could also see Kyle Cuff being that guy a little bit. He didn't get as many uh, points, you know, as we thought. Ended he ended up with have. eleven. He ended up with eleven. He did. He did hit a three here and there. He did drive and score quite a bit. He actually has a pretty good finishing presence, but he's also a little bit rusty, as you'll hear in the audio later that we had with Kyle Cuff. That was the first organized sort of scrimmage game that he's played in in three years, because you know two years ago. You had COVID last year. He redshirted. He hasn't really played an actual organized game in three years, so he's a little bit rusty. But I think if he can shake that rust off, I think he can definitely be a great playmaker for this Kansas lineup. Well, he has he has all the athleticism that you would want from that guard position. It's just about if he can, like you said, um, if he can have the the game experience and and work in that way. It's just it it's going to be tough when you think about it that if you only have one other guard playing realistically in the lineup, can he beat out those other two guys? He could, who knows, but uh, that becomes a, a tough kind of uphill battle. You mentioned MJ Rice. I think that's interesting because if if this does become a team where it is defense first and you're looking for guys to kind of carry the offense, like you expect Jalen Wilson to get you 15, 16, who knows, maybe more per game. Um, you're going to expect for, you know, probably double digits from Kevin McCuller and stuff, but Who's going to be the alpha, the other alpha potentially of the offense? Um, MJ Rice clearly uh, was not gun shy in in taking shots, and I could see him putting that kind of uh, up on himself. And then the two other ones that stick out to me there, and just looking at the points, like Zach Clement scored nineteen, so that's that's pretty big time. Ernest Duday scoring sixteen, 
Um, but how about KJ Adams scoring 16? Right. Just because we don't think of KJ Adams as like an offensive player. And so again, like you look at the format, you look at the camp scrimmage, something that's probably more up and down that would tend to probably favor a guy like that who's an athlete and can run up and down the court and, and dunk. How was KJ getting a majority of his buckets? That's what I'm kind of curious on. They were mostly dunks, mm-hmm. mostly just him driving into the lane, getting a couple of quick feeds, great feeds from Dewan or Yesifu or something like that. But I think a couple of those he drove in from the top of the key, was able to shake off the defender and drive it in, take it home himself. He's also working on his jump shot. He took a couple of mid-range jumpers. He made one. I think he missed two. But he is working on his jump shot a little bit. But I think what you're going to mainly see a little bit more from him is they're going to try to attack with him inside a little bit more. He's He kind of plays like a power forward or a center, but if you look at you know the other guys, the other great big men in the country or in the NBA, he's undersized, but he can jump higher than most of them. He's one of the more athletic guys you will see in basketball, in college basketball, I should say. And that I think that's going to be a tremendous feat for him. And I think they're going to try to attack with him a little bit more than they did last year. Yeah, I... I, I, I'm very curious to see what the role is going to be um, because of the fact that that it is, you know, again, like tough to figure out. If he's playing the four, Jalen's going to take up most of those minutes. Can you play him at the three at all if your four is shooting well in the case of Jalen? Is he going to play some at the five? He's obviously a very useful player, and you can use him in certain roles. You can use him in certain ways. But I would imagine if you're K.J. Adams, like you were, you were fine kind of playing that role, playing as the defensive stopper that comes in every now and then. Uh in year one as a freshman on a national title team, are you going to be happy if that's your role again in year two with maybe just a few more minutes? But if you're scoring like that, which, uh, you know, if you're able to shoot a little bit and and that's able to get you more run on the court, then that becomes more of a realistic thing. He's he's a guy I'm very high on, and uh, I think we're going to see more of him dribbling, passing the basketball, especially if he is more of a wing or a 3-4 man. But that's going to be the key. Like, you have to be ag- uh, aggressive offensively. Um, and, you know, there's always the comparison made of, like, Mark Vital, who you think about that, like, K.J. Adams still has a couple inches, probably a, I don't know, Mark Vital had a pretty big wingspan, but it wouldn't surprise me if K.J. Adams is an even bigger wingspan. Yeah, but Vital, Vital was more of a bigger dude, as, as athletic as he was. He was more of a bigger guy, so, you know, he was kind of hard to stop in the paint. Yeah, but, like, he wasn't a guy that was putting up big numbers. Right. Talking about five points. And, and I think there's more... There's more potential there for KJ Adams is what I'm saying. Like we we've heard that comparison so many times from, you know, guests who come on the show and I think it's true from the defensive impact and and from some of the role player impact. But yeah, if you can get like some sort of offensive punch, it doesn't have to be, you know, consistent 10 points every night or something like that, but to do something like that, 16 a game, which again, huge grain of salt. This is a uh, camp scrimmage over the course of the right. summer, but it becomes uh, another uh, data point, something we can point to if there's more things like this that stack up and we can continue to uh, uh, kind of point back from there. Were there any players that, that kind of struggled that that maybe had a, a tough time going up against a certain matchup? Uh, I would say, like we mentioned, MJ Rice finished with 18, but he started off struggling. I, I think you could just easily tell he was yeah. tired. Um, we didn't see a whole lot of Edge. I thought we were going to see more of Edgefer. He didn't. Uh, I don't think he played in the scrimmage at all. I honestly can't really think of one guy that struggled in a matchup. I would say, I I just think there were a couple of guys that I thought could have shot a little bit better. Um, Trying to remember off the top of my head who that might be, but 
Um, when it came to matchup wise, I couldn't I I couldn't uh, really see anything that somebody was struggling with. I think I think all the players that were in were at least decent in their own right. Obviously, some standing out more than others. Um, I do want to say, you know, kind of shifting the topic a tad bit. One guy that I was really impressed with was Ernest Uday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I obviously I'm interested to see what he could do defensively. You know, you don't see a whole lot of defense in these kind of scrimmages. I think on offense, he was a great guy to look for. You know, guys were able to get get great passes inside, and he can he can also throw it down with the best of them. He's a really athletic six foot ten guy. So yeah, seven two wingspan. Yeah, um, he's kind of more the traditional center you would think of with Bill Self and. Uh, you know, you Zach Clemens, you have kind of the stretch guy, which would be the new age that we haven't really seen the, the Bill Self utilize in the past. Uday is, is the type of guy that we have very much so, and uh, so I'm curious what his role will end up being on this team. Like you said, Zuby Edgefer, uh, somebody that I'm interested in. And I saw today he, like, said his, his all-time KU starting five. I don't know if it was his favorite KU starting five or if he was picking the best because if it was the best – Left off Danny Manning and Wilt Chamberlain. We got some uh, <laughs> educating to do with Zuby Edgefer. It was his favorite. Different discussion. Uh, nonetheless, I, I'm really excited to see what uh, both Zuby and, and Ernest can do as, as young freshmen. Said. I hope he put Paul Pierce in his starting five. He did. He had Paul okay, Pierce. Good. I think it was Andrew Wiggins, uh, Joel Embiid, yeah. Frank Mason and Mario Chalmers, or maybe Devontae Graham and Mario Chalmers, something like that. I, I would switch around a few of those there. De- I would definitely include Danny and Wilt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we're doing best all time, it has to have Danny and Wilt. Those are two best players in program history. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was his favorite list. In, in that case, it always cracks me up. Somebody will be like, you know, my favorite player of all time is, is like Dwayne Wade. And somebody's like, wrong, Kobe Bryant's better than him. It's like, what do you mean wrong? I'm picking my favorite player. <laughs> so if that's the case, uh, forget what I just said. He is Lane Gillespie. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.